Hey, um, if you've got your Bibles, go to uh, Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. And while you're turning there, let me ask, have you anybody started watching Christmas movies yet? Any, anybody? All right, good. Good for you. Well, one of, um, we have two. We've watched a couple of new ones. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of new, new. you know. I like the old ones. Um, Christmas Vacation, this is a classic. One that uh, will get you just in the right frame of mind, you know. So, it is—it actually is one of my favorites. I mean, it's it's Chevy Chase at the height of Chevy Chase. Uh, Beverly D'Angelo plays his wife, so he's Clark Griswold. She's Ellen. They've got uh, family that comes in uh, for Christmas, and you've got an aunt and an uncle, and then cousin cousin Catherine and and Eddie. Uh, played by Randy Quaid, shows up. In fact, they're standing there, and all of a sudden, Randy Quaid appears, you know, Cousin Eddie, and uh, he says to Clark, he says, are you surprised? He said, surprised, Eddie? If I woke up with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am now. Classic. Begins, they go to look for a Christmas tree, have a car wreck. There's the scene where he's got all the light, he's been working on all the lights, and you can't, he can't, get them to, to work. But the pinnacle event of the movie, it leads you to this Christmas dinner. And Clark is there. You know, Ellen brings in the turkey. Clark's at the, at the head of the table with the green tie, holding the carving knife. And it's a scene, it looks like, Norman Rockwell's uh, famous Thanksgiving dinner. And it just adds to the sentimental expectations, at least this Christmas, is going to be perfect. Clark Aunt asked Aunt Bethany uh, to pray. Uh, she has hard of hearing, didn't quite understand. She ends up leading him in the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> he goes to cut the turkey. The turkey explodes. There's nothing left. There's the green jello seasoned with cat food. Everyone and everything is falling apart. Escalates quickly. And then everybody decides they're going to leave. The guests are packed. They're ready to leave. And Clark's standing at the front door. And he says, where do you think you're going? Nobody's leaving. Nobody's walking out of this fun, old-fashioned family Christmas. No, no, no. We're all in this together. It's a full-blown, four-alarm holiday emergency. We're going to press on. And we're going to have the hap-hap-happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny Kaye. His wife says to him, don't, don't you think we ought to end this before it gets worse? He says, worse? How could, it, how could things get any worse? Take a look around you, Ellen. We're at the threshold of hell. <laughs> the, the power of that scene, the reason, the reason we laugh is and so, so it's, it's exaggerated. But we all understand it. The, the polished perfection of the holiday table and yet underneath the enduring anguish of everyone that's sitting around it. So I am not for a minute suggesting that everybody's Christmas dinners are like that. But I think you know what I mean. That things don't work out the way we want them to. At the heart of human life at the heart of human experience is our inability 
to make things turn out right. To, to make things turn out the way we want them to. Well, this passage gives us this glimpse of hope. Look, look with me. I'm, I'm in Luke chapter 1. And it's called, this passage is famous. It begins in verse 26. And of course it's famous, you know. But it's called the Annunciation. And it's when Gabriel the angel shows up to announce, to make an Annunciation to Mary that your life is about to radically change. Everything you thought is going to be entirely different. Look at this, verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So stop right there for a second. So, so you've got the angel. He's the, he's the messenger. You know, angels are mysterious. The, the Bible only gives us a few glimpses of them. But, but we can say this for certain. An angel means, means messenger and specifically God's messenger. A being who, who arrives directly from the presence of God. Directly from the presence of undiluted power. Of, of unadulterated holiness. One writer said, angels descend from the seat of cosmic majesty into the dust and ashes of a dying world. That they bring their news from another place, another sphere altogether. They come into the kingdoms of this world from the kingdoms of our Lord. Gabriel the last time we saw Gabriel in Scripture well, was 500 years before this happens. He, he appeared to Daniel. You could go to Daniel and you could read about that. Daniel's reading. He's, he's meditating on the words that Jeremiah wrote. And uh, the, Gabriel sh sh is sent to Daniel and he shows up and he, and he says, Listen, I, I meant to get here sooner, but I've been delayed for 21 days. I've been in an angelic conflict, fighting off three demons. And Michael shows up and, and came to my aid. And so I escaped and I'm here in your presence. And, and Gabriel's revelation to Daniel was about the coming Messiah. Listen, Gabriel came to Daniel as he's meditating on Jeremiah to tell him, hey, there's hope because there's a Messiah coming, a Jesus coming. Now he shows up first to Zechariah, just before this, then to Mary. Gabriel's name means God's fortitude. It's appropriate he's chosen for the Annunciation. That the power of God announces the coming of Christ. The angel's name's in harmony with the message. Don't miss this. Did the text... Specifically says he was sent from God to, to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. From, from a real place to a, to a real place. 
that this is concrete geography, and it's all over chapters 1 and 2 of Luke. You can find all of it on a map. This isn't, it's mystery, but it's not mythology. You know, it's not Asgard or Olympus or the nether, you know, Neverland. It's from heaven to earth, from God to Nazareth. It is supernatural. An announcement is about a baby that will be conceived and born into this world, and this baby is bigger than the world. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. It's a beautiful thought. Well, then you have Mary. She's introduced. Elizabeth, her, her aunt who became pregnant in her old age, Elizabeth's blessed with a miraculous situation. Mary, she's going to be blessed with a very difficult situation. From all indicators, her life was not on a trajectory to be extraordinary. This is what her life would have been. Living when she did, where she did, she would have married humbly. She would have given birth to numerous poor children. She would have never traveled farther than just a few miles from her home. And one day, like thousands of others before, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. To say she's from Nazareth, she's an unknown girl from an unknown place. Later on, Nathaniel, one of the disciples, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, look at the announcement, the Annunciation, verse 28. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Every time someone encounters an angel, every time someone in the Scriptures encounters someone who has come from the presence of God... They always have to be told, don't don't be afraid. You know, we have so much casual talk and nonsense about angels sometimes, you know. Listen, it's terrifying. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. I want to talk about this announcement for just a second. What is it that Gabriel says to Mary? What is it that Gabriel is promising Mary in this divine announcement, having come from the throne of God to the nowhere town of Nazareth to a nobody girl named Mary? What is the promise being made? Well, so he's going to say five things about Mary's son. He's going to say he'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. He'll be given the throne of his father David. He'll reign 
over the house of Jacob forever in his, his kingdom will never end. We'll give you a quick Old Testament history lesson, all right? It's all of these things that the angel is announcing to Mary are all the fulfillment of an old, old, old promise that God made back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God will show up to David and he will make David a promise. He'll make David a covenant. And the covenant is is incredible. David, you're, you're going to be the king over Israel and there will never be never be an end to that reign, David. Here's what I found. That That reign, your dynasty, will last forever. Well, what happens after that? So for David, most people, David's an Old Testament hero. In the biblical narratives, he he comes alive in, in the narratives as few other people do in ancient times. And he's a you know, he's a man's man, handsome, regal, lying on the battlefield. He's a poet and musician. You know, he's, he's strong, but he's introspective. He's prayerful, man of action. However, the, the, the deathbed scene of, of David, one writer coined it this way, it's as pathetic as his life is Titanic. He's so feeble at the very last of his days that he can't leave his room and he, sh- he shivers with cold constantly. His servants and his family, they, they pile covers on him with, to, to no avail. Finally, what they do to keep him warm is they put a young woman in the bed to keep him warm. And it sounds strange. It's sorted and, and it's not. David's weak. His vigor's gone. It's a picture of a man wasting away at the end of his life and he can't get warm. David's family troubles followed him to his deathbed. His hour of weakness, one of his sons, Absalom, rises up to snatch the kingdom away. In David's heyday, he had plans to build a temple. The Nathan, prophet Nathan says, no, 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 don't worry, David. You're going to get everything ready. Your, son, your son's going to build the temple. In fact, Nathan announces the Lord will build you a house. He'll raise you up, your offspring to succeed. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. And in spite of this prophecy, the house of David is going to collapse into ashes as David's own life does. He unites this monarchy to only see two generations later. The monarchy will be divided and then later carried off into foreign lands where they're going to be mocked by people who don't speak their language. 
as Clark Griswold would have said if someone said, well, how could this get any worse? We're already at the threshold of hell. In fact, Psalm 137, we sat down by the waters of Babylon. These are David's descendants. And there we wept. It's no coincidence that this everlasting promise, this unbelievable promise, this old, old promise of an everlasting throne was given by a God, was given by God to a man who had less control over his household than Clark Griswold. Listen to me. The mercy of God does not depend upon human virtue for fulfillment. The the mystery of the Advent season lies, as one writer says, precisely in its location, placed as it is between the now of human failure and disappointment and the not yet of God's coming kingdom. And yet with all that, that the promise to David, the, the covenant of, of God with David, it's still preserved. It was still believed. It was still hoped for. And, and it seems odd that you get to the first century and you come to a place like Nazareth and Nathan's prophecy to David would have been preserved. It would have been treasured. Ordinarily, prophecies that, that didn't come true, that they'd be tossed on the scrap heap. They'd be too embarrassing to keep around. This prophecy had been told and had been retold. Had not the promises of an eternal kingdom turned to ashes? Hadn't the joyful celebrations of freedom ended in bondage? It seems that there's no progress in this old promise. You look around and there's no king reigning in Israel. No Davidic king There hasn't been for nearly 600 years. Yet Israel is clinging to this prophecy. And it's for one reason and one reason only. Because it was said to have come not from man but from God. It was said that the Lord had spoken to the prophet Nathan. And God wasn't dependent upon man. So the angel shows up. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, sent by God to a virgin named Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, David's descendant upon David's throne, ruling over Jacob's people forever. Now listen to Mary's response. Verse 29. She's greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Then go down to verse 34. She hears the angel out, and then Mary said to the angel, How how will this be since I'm a virgin? Well, listen, there's two kinds of doubt. There's a doubt that's a sign of a closed mind, and a doubt's a sign of an open mind, a kind of doubt that actually really does want an answer. That the kind of person that 
It's open to the truth. We're willing to step aside for the truth to make its way. This is Mary. She asks a great question. How's this guy? This is great. Never seen an angel. Going to write this in my journal. I promise. But, but you're telling me, I mean, get this. You, you're telling me something of eternal, everlasting significance. And, you know, she might say, look, I get it. I get it. I heard all that. I, I know all that. I memorized it. It's the promise of all promises. This is huge. There seems to be one tiny problem in the here and now that is not accounted for. I, I, am, I am betrothed. I'm not even married. I am a virgin. The angel is going to give an answer. But I want you to hear the answer is mystery, not science. The answer is mystery. It's an explanation that says it's mystery. It is not an explanation that explains the science because this is something God is doing. It's the result of his powerful presence. Sometimes God, what he does is he draws a veil over the mystery of his work, and we've got to be content with that. There's no precise explanation of the how here. Siri, driving me nuts. There's this illustration, a story of a young, new ordained preacher and his young wife. And they, they vowed to each other early in their marriage that they were going to be more considerate of each other. And so she promised not to be so critical of his sleep-inducing sermons. And he promised to respect her privacy by not looking through her dresser drawers. So they were true to their words, and, and the marriage went smoothly. And then 50 years later... Their children throw a huge party for the parents. And they received all these gifts. And they were, they were putting them away that evening. And the preacher noticed his, his, uh, his wife left one of the dresser drawers slightly open. And try as he could, he couldn't resist looking. And, and he looked in there. And he found three eggs and $10,000 in cash. So he's puzzled by this. And he says, yeah. Says to his wife, says, so you remember years ago we promised to be more considerate of each other and promised to stop criticizing your boring, you know, I promised to stop criticizing your boring sermons. She said, well, so here's what I did instead. Every time you preached a real snoozer, I put an egg in that drawer. The preacher's thinking, this is bad, 50 years of sermons, um, only three eggs. All right, well, so what about the money? And she says, well, Every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. <laughs> sometimes it's better not to know, right? And sometimes God puts us in that position. One commentator, there are no intricate details about the 
virginal conception of Jesus. This is rather typical. With the living God, we often meet conundrums. The mystery of Jesus' conception, mystery of the cross, the mystery of Christian experience, the perplexity of unanswered prayer and quandaries behind suffering. Some of God's mysteries may be intentional. It may be that he doesn't merely want to feed our curiosity, but he wants to lead us to worship. It's not that he wants you to be ignorant of things. He wants you to be content that he is competent. He doesn't want you to speculate. He wants you to adore. Notice verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And the story of the Annunciation, this announcement by the angel Gabriel. We're hearing what the old church, the the early church called a novum. It's Latin for a new thing. The angel and the the virgin, it tells us that God's going to enter the world directly in the person of his son, begotten by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that brought forth creation out of nothing. So you may be here this morning. For some reason, you think, well, the virgin birth, it's not important. It doesn't really make a difference one way or another. But let me just say, for 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, and in the midst of scorn and ridicule of scholarship in every generation the church, the true church has said otherwise. The Nicene Creed says this, I believe in in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, whom for us men uh, and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. Fast forward seven, 1300 years. Charles Wesley's Heart the Herald Angels Sing, Christ the Everlasting Lord, late in time, behold, has come, offspring of the Virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Could go on and on. For 2,000 years, Christian proclamation has said we're not talking about an ordinary human birth. We're talking about one who was born as no one else was born, 
born as fully human, yes, but begotten directly by the power of God. The promise is that the everlasting kingdom is upon us. Where does it come from? Well, it doesn't come from us, that's for sure. But something has happened, and that's the message of this announcement. God has moved. Angel Gabriel crashes into the story of this, of, of this teenage girl in the middle of nowhere to announce the hope humanity has been longing for. Heaven is coming to earth, the real heaven. The heaven of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and his kingdom will be forever and we're going to build you a house, says the Lord. And Jesus is the house and the word is made flesh and dwells among us. And he's entered the world of the ignorant and the dying. Emmanuel, God with us. And his throne will be forever. And this is the meaning of the virgin birth. This is the meaning of this announcement. God has moved. We didn't go to him in our powerlessness and weakness and failure. We couldn't get to him. It is God that takes the first step towards us. Notice verse 1, verse 31. You'll call his name Jesus, which means God saves. In verse 32, he'll be called the Son of the Most High. In verse 35, he'll be called Holy, the Son of God. This powerful angelic messengers arrived. And the first thing that happens is you think, well, is this power for us or is it against us? You find out it's for us. The announcement is that God has come. To be with us. We were not abandoned. God's moved. He's made the move towards us. And because of the son that is to be born. The one on whose shoulders the government will rest. The one who will be called Wonderful Counselor. And Mighty God. And Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And sons and daughters will be raised from the dead. Human family will be restored around the table of the Lord. And I can't tell you why it takes so long. I can't tell you why it costs so much pain. But I can tell you today. We're not speaking about human hopes and human wishes and human dreams. We're speaking about the promises of God. And what's happening at Christmas? It's not from man. It's from God. That, that's what the announcement declares. That's what the virgin birth signifies. And so how do we respond? Well, look at how Mary responds in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel 
departed from her. The early Christians spent a lot of time wrestling with what to do with Mary. A lot of you may have grown up Catholic and you know what the Catholic Church has decided, but it's not what the early, early church decided. Augustine said this, speaking about how blessed it was that this this woman, this teenager, would become the mother of the Son of God. I mean, most surely she should be revered. And so he's, he's writing about this, and Augustine says, listen, Mary's more blessed in receiving the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. Her nearness as a mother would have been no profit to Mary had she not borne Christ in her heart after a more blessed manner than in her flesh. In other words, giving birth to the Son of God for Mary pales to being born again by faith in that Son. If Christ is in us, and so we're we're the children of, of God, Mary's heart and it's a model for us in discipleship. One, let me just let me just give you four, and then we'll be done. One, we must cultivate a heart that is humble. This ongoing spirit of of, of poverty that's that's not only open to God's grace, but a heart that desperately longs for. God's grace. So I just want to say this morning, I want to pray this morning that if, if you sit here this in any way and, and pride lies beneath the surface in your marriage or your parenting or in your work or in your status or because you checked your bank account or your investments this morning. If pride lies underneath the surface, I'm praying the Spirit would convict you this morning. And you could confess that. And and in humility, worship and adore. Be reminded this morning, this is a story that has nothing to do with human hands. All our accomplishments, all our perceived greatness, that it would wash away in the presence of what God announces, of what God has done. Cultivating a heart that's humble. I think, secondly, we we need a, a heart that meditates on God's word. If I had a couple of weeks, or maybe better, if I had a couple of hours this morning and somehow you were trapped and couldn't leave, I could take you through and show you 
Every verse, Mary's responding with the words of Scripture. Scripture she'd known. Scripture she'd meditated on. Scripture she had no idea was ultimately about her. Thirdly, that you'd have a heart that believes and hopes. Here's the definition of hope. and It comes from Hebrews 11.1. 1, hope in the Christian sense. It's the expectation of future blessing. It's the confidence that the best is yet to come. I'll show you something real quick. Verse 48, Mary's going to make a statement. And she says, for from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And, um, Jason and Bev Chandler read that this morning. You realize that she says, well, all the, all the generations from now on are going to call me blessed. And that's a statement of faith. It's acknowledging she truly will bear the promised Messiah. She's believing. She, she believes what was said, and she hopes in what was said to the degree that she knows that this truth will result in generations calling her blessed. It's not a statement of pride. It's a humble statement of belief. Believe this. We would cultivate hearts that believe and hope in God's promise. And finally, we'd have hearts that were submissive. Oh, it's a word we hate. And there's no greater blessing than to live our life that way. I am the Lord's servant, she says. May it be to me as you have said. That'd be a great prayer for us today. I'm your servant. Whatever you have for me, I pray it would be just that. That we'd have hearts that would submit so fully to what God has for us. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do these things in our hearts. Father, I pray you'd draw us by your Spirit into the story. That we'd see that this is not just it's in just another ordinary human event that is taking place, that this, Father, this is you sending your messenger from your throne and crashing into history. As you declare your faithfulness to the promises that you've made. And Father, you preserved this for us. So that this morning, as we reflect upon it, we have a model, your servant, Mary, whom you found favor, and how to respond to you. So, Father, I pray that as we're considering what it means to experience Emmanuel, experience what it is that God is with us, 
Father, would you draw us to your son this morning? Not out of sentiment for the holiday season, but in faith and hope, believing in what he has done. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen.